In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey, Rob. It's Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Just listen to episodes two and three of your deep dive. Excellent job. Really enjoying it. I do not think you're being too negative. I know you're a little worried about that, but don't be. It's enjoyable. We know you love BX. Don't worry. You're not putting the system down. It's all good. Every system has some weird things about it, so it's not a big deal. And I'm looking forward to your follow-on deep dive of Raw Master and Space Master. So we're looking forward to that next combination. But definitely keep going on BX right now because it's great, and I'm enjoying listening to it. Talk to you later. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Down in the Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful Northeast Minneapolis. You're there from Jason at the top of the show. He was referring to a little discussion we had on the Audio Dungeon Discord where I was a little bit apprehensive about <laughs> the, the BX deep dive and how some might be construing this as a we kind of tearing bx a new one and i'm I'm glad it's not coming across that way to you jason if if anything it's almost uh while it's a deep dive into the specifics of bx it's almost a a look at old school D &D in general and some of the i don't know well it is definitely the game I've played by far the most. I mean, between BX and AD&D and 2nd Edition uh, AD&D. And it's a game I enjoy. Um, I obviously wouldn't be playing it so much if I didn't enjoy it. But there are a lot of flaws to the game that I see, and which in part is why I house rule a lot of things. But, but just the structure of the game in general... I think has a lot of issues and while there might be other game systems that would work better I just know this one so well that it's kind of hard to veer away from it plus I just have so much material for it to use and translating all of that to a different system say like basic role-playing or something or I don't know something of my own design would be a lot of work. And I'm kind of a lazy man. But I had a lot of calls. Um, so let's do another call in Bonanza. What's up, Rob? It's Joe again. And yeah, dude, the alignment languages are super weird. I've heard them once described as they were supposed to kind of be like religious languages, sort of the way that you know, back in the day, all Catholics were supposed to speak Latin and all Jewish people spoke Hebrew and that kind of thing. Um, it still doesn't make any sense, though, man. Like, it's a crazy thing. I don't know anyone who ever used it. But yeah, I do. I do kind of like the uh, three tiered alignment system because, you know, law and chaos maybe are a little less subjective than good and evil. I don't know. That might not be true at all. Anyway, man, I'm, I'm super digging the deep dive on BX. Keep it up, but you're probably getting close to the end. So take it easy, man. Peace out. And there you heard from Joe from the 
Hindsightless and Wheeler Woe Podcast. Thanks for calling in. Alignment languages are really kooky, and we never really use them at our table. I have heard of people, like you mentioned, use them as some sort of religious or cultural language, with law maybe being something like Latin, and chaos being something like the black speech from uh, Middle Earth. And neutrality, I don't know, would that be something like druidic? Mm, You could make it work, I suppose, um, if you weave it into your game setting and stuff. That's, That's one of the strange things, though. It never really seemed to be implemented in any of the old games uh worlds like Greyhawk and Forgotten Realms and all that. I don't at least I don't recall it being weaved in in some kind of coherent fashion. And yeah, you're right as far as the three-point alignment system is a little bit um more loosey-goosey than the nine-point. And I really, I mean, I kind of flippantly sold sold a little bit short by cutting to the chase with the last uh sentence in each of the uh, at least law and chaos you know basically saying that they're equating law with good and chaos with evil but they do go into it more as far as law favoring the group and what's what's best for the group and civilization in general and chaos favoring the individual and not really um being uh, being more Anarchy and things like that, um, and random, and believing in luck and things like that. So, there are there is more nuance, obviously, to it. And but in general, I just think that alignment systems, at least for player characters, it, it can work. It obviously has been done a lot, but I just find it invites more trouble than it's worth at the game table. And as far as the deep dive goes, ooh, I'm not <laughs> not going to be wrapping up anytime soon. At the rate I'm going, it's probably going to be another four or five episodes. I, I'm only, at best, doing one part of the rules, the, the way the BX is divided up into parts. Um, I'm only getting, getting through at least one part, uh, or at most, I should say, one part per episode. So, yeah, let's go to the next call. Hey Rob, Spencer here. I just wanted to say I've really enjoyed your deep dive into BX. And um, I don't know if you're interested, but I do have an explanation for why Gavin Norman changed the name of BX Essentials to Old School Essentials. And it was primarily because he found that when he went to cons, a lot of players below a certain age didn't get the BX reference and were potentially passing on a product that may be just what they were looking for so it was just to appeal to a wider audience um, and uh, show people who were interested in old school gaming but maybe not familiar with BX that uh, this might be what they were looking for so uh, yeah enjoyed the the uh, BX episodes and uh, keep them coming take care and there was Spencer from Keep Off the Borderlands. Thanks for the call and the clarification on Gavin Norman's decision to change from BX Essentials to Old School Essentials. That makes complete sense. Even among, I don't know, really involved gamers, I think it's kind of hard to keep track of all the different iterations of, of D&D and, and what each one entailed. 
I mean, even the, within the basic framework, isn't there, is there like five iterations? There's Holmes, BX, Beckme, Rule Cyclopedia, and then I think there was something that came out after Rule Cyclopedia, like some kind of Challenger edition or something, that it's something I didn't have. Um, but yeah, and then within the the other branch, the AD&D line, of course, there's like six versions, so plus old <laughs> zero edition. It's just, it's just crazy when you think of all the different iterations and then pile on all the OSR remakes of all these things or clones of these things, and it's, yeah, it's no wonder people's heads start spinning. But uh, thanks for the clarification, and I hope I don't sound like I'm running down Gavin Norman's, uh, you know, version here. I think, by all accounts, it's outstanding, and I'm glad it's been put out there and that people are enjoying it because it's uh, creating more talk about BX. And now let's move on to what's going to be the meat of the episode, a collection of calls, or actually files, that Evil Jeff sent me about episodes two and three of the Deep Dive. So take it away, Evil Jeff. Rob, it's Evil Jeff. As promised, or maybe threatened, uh, kind of commenting on your BX Deep Dive uh, since you threw out two of them real quick, I'll go ahead and record all my notes here for both the second and third parts that you put out. Also, to kind of head off a question or comment that I think I might hear later on, uh, I can hear somebody going, why didn't I do this in my own podcast? And I did think about that about piggybacking off of your podcast in a way, but that, that didn't seem right. I'd rather keep it all together, you know, if that sounds correct there. So, you know, any comments and so forth, since you're doing the deep dive, we'll call into you. They don't need to go to someone else's podcast to hear it. That just seems a little counterintuitive in a way. Um, by no means take this as a criticism either. Uh, just kind of, you know, you ask for, comments and call-ins and that's what I'm doing and this is definitely uh, going to go through a outside recording device and I'll probably uh, throw it out in a couple ways here probably break it up into three or four sections um, not saying there's that many notes but just kind of as a, a kindness so you don't have to if you want to comment you can comment on some of the stuff that is said there uh, just a quick preface BX, you know, and after hearing other anchorites and reading about it, in many ways it seems like what we were getting at with BX was simplification of current rules there. Almost feels like what Che and Frank T are doing with GURPS, stripping it down to essential parts. And to a degree, I think that's what BX was doing, stripping it down, um, making it to be more a little more role play rather than here's all these rules and such because advanced AD&D you know AD&D advanced Dungeons and Dragons let's say it whichever way we can do it you know, it was a codified set of rules but it in many ways makes it to me feel like the wargaming roots you know everybody knows what they're supposed to have 
and you have no real surprises or changes there. So I think you really, that's where BX comes into play here by stripping out all the unnecessary things. All these little ADB things that war gamers would want to know for realism, etc. I think that's where AD&D uh, really kind of took its cue from. That's just to me. Um, yeah, there was a lot of flaws in there, and I, I think it comes down to the day of needing better proofreaders. In this day and age of the internet that we have, it's a lot easier to share PDFs and review things and, and share things out. Uh, not as easy as it was back in the early 70s there. All right, so let's... Uh, well, actually, you know what? Let's uh, stop this recording. And let's start another one to get into things. Uh-oh, sounds like I'm in a little bit of trouble here. <laughs> but seriously, I, I welcome the calls from Evil Jeff here to point out the areas where I've either misspoke or just got something wrong. And I understand how you, you sometimes feel a little bit apprehensive about calling in and leaving three, four, five plus messages or something to someone else's show and you've feel almost like you're taking over their podcast but it'll be good here to uh fold it into the, the whole series and um and have this discussion i think that's the best way uh that anchor allows you to do these ki kinds of things and while it's perfectly fine to do your own uh podcast on your show a segment about bx or or really for anyone to to have their own take on someone else on a topic that someone else brings up. I think that's great because that, that's kind of a form of discussion too where each person is listening to someone else's podcast and maybe responding to it in their own long format. But yeah, let's go on to the next uh, set of thoughts from Evil Jeff. So we pick up with the order of the stats there. Um, you and I both in the same camp, the order that we learned them in, strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, charisma. You know, why are they that way? Uh, you said it a little bit later on, and I, I, I had never caught it that way, but it makes sense. The first three stats, strength, intelligence, and wisdom, can be adjusted up or down. Dex can only be adjusted up if it is a prime requisite. And in fact, the first four stats are the only ones that can be prime requisites. Constitution and charisma can never be adjusted. They're also never prime requisites. So might as well put those numbers at the tail end. I think it was just something that they saw there real quick and it made sense to them. Uh, does it make sense to us nowadays? I don't know. I mean, I, I can see where it came from. Keeps things a little easier. Yeah, you can mess with the first three numbers. Move them around, you know. Raise one up, one, down two. Though it is interesting to note that the ability to score adjustments are only if it's you choose a class and it's their prime requisite. You can only raise up a stat that's a prime requisite. You cannot lower a stat that's a prime requisite. That was an interesting note that we see in there. Uh and just so we can also say it, a slight correction there. Um, I didn't hear it the very first time you said it. 
And then when I was going back through and listening, I heard it. I did hear it, and I had to replay it just to make sure. Uh, charisma, when you were talking about reactions and everything, uh, slight misspeaking there. You did say a 2D12 instead of a 2D6 or 2 through 12 for the reaction roll. So just a quick you know, clarification for anybody else that was hearing it out there. Yep, you're right. I'm, I misspoke. It's uh, 2d6, not 2d12. I must have uh, a d12 on the brain. As you all know, I love d12. It was probably some kind of thing where I was mixing thoughts, thinking of the range of 2 to 12 and the dice mechanic of 2d6 and just combined them. Synapse error. All right, on to the classes. You start off with cleric. Why would anybody want to play a fighter instead of a cleric? I mean, cleric's just as good. Almost, you know, can wear any armor. Uh, attack matrix, not as good as you'll dig into later on, I'm fairly certain. Uh, not as good of hit points. But they've got other things that are advantages there. They get to turn undead. And then when we get to second level, we get to cast a spell. So, you know, you realistically could see a party of all clerics going out and tearing up the town, tearing up dungeons, etc. like that. That might be a very interesting campaign to run. Um, but why not have the flavor, you know, a, God of, you know, a cleric of a god of war, why can't you have a sword and everything? Well, what was the difference between our cleric and a fighter? The only major thing is the hit points in there, our attack matrix as we'll look on later on, but we still need to differentiate something. If you use standard weapon damage, which just happens to be 1d6, there is very little reason to ever choose a fighter unless you're just trying to get more hit points. But if you do variable weapon damage, which is not an option, you'll later, I believe you'll get to that later on here, but variable weapon damage, it's not an optional thing, it's just something that could be used. You got two different rule sets we can use there. Clerics can only use blunt, and blunt weapons only go up to 1d6. Your edged weapons can do 1d8 or 1d10, depending upon what they are. So now the fighter actually has the advantage of doing more damage and being that bigger bad guy out there kicking butt, taking names, etc. So, yeah, I think there's, you know, how you play really dictates whether a cleric is, uh, or a fighter is better than a cleric, or vice versa, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, good pickup on that uh, high-level advancement there. I'd, I've looked at that chart multiple times. I've written out that chart, you know, put it into a OneNote format. Never saw that differentiation there. You know, once you hit 11th level, clerics start taking off like a shot. Uh, for advancement, thieves uh, definitely slow down. Uh, what else did you say there? Ah, magic users. Um, if I was going to do it, it, rules as written, you know, they couldn't use a shield. You're right. They're, they're just, they got to sit in the back. They're going to have to hold the torch. You know, they, they got to stay out of the way. That's really what it is. You know, 
if you give them a shield, you might as well just be an elf. Enough said. You, you said enough about that. Um, thieves, I think you missed a great special ability in there. You know, of all the thiefly skills and so forth, what you didn't note was that this is the first time we get the special ability where it says, when striking unnoticed from behind, they get a bonus of plus four under the hit rolls and inflict twice the normal amount of damage. So this little four hit point character, or 1d4 hit point character, that can use any weapon, but doesn't have a shield, if he's coming up behind anybody, and let's take your spear or pole arm, what if nobody, you know, a person doesn't know about it, all of a sudden this pole arm jabs somebody in the back, didn't know from behind, because remember, it's unnoticed. Plus four to hit. You're also saying that most of the time, and I believe later on we start talking about armor class, you know, there's a difference between armored with shield, unarmored, and from behind, and from behind, I believe, and I would actually have to go back to the rules, and I'm not going to do it right now, they don't get their dexterity bonus. So you really, really do major damage there if you can allow that thief to get up behind somebody unnoticed. So, you know, there's, a, there's an advantage there. Still, they got to get behind somehow unnoticed so there's a big if there right fighters advance in their hit probabilities more quickly than the other human classes uh, they all start out the same i mean everyone has the same hit probability at first level second level third level then the fighter jumps up at fourth which is eight thousand experience points for them the cleric and thief jump up at fifth level which for a thief is only 9600 not much more than the fighter and 12,000 for the cleric. And, yeah, hit points, D8's obviously better than a D6, is better than a D4, but I think a lot of people just automatically think that, oh, I'm rolling a D8, that's going to be better than a D6, and, yeah, you're more likely to roll higher, but it's far from a given. And if you just compute averages, you know, an average roll on a D8's 4.5, average rolls on a D6 is 3.5, and on a D4 is two and a half. So the difference between a D8 and a D6 is one hit point per level. So it's not that much. The ceiling's obviously higher for the fighter. I mean, potentially, a fifth-level fighter, not assuming constitution adjustments, could have 40 hit points. And the uh, cleric would be 30. But if you just look at averages, it would only be five different. And who knows, the way you're rolling attributes down the line, there's no guarantee who's going to have a con higher constitution. That could be either one. So, yeah, there's no, there's no guarantee that the fighter's going to have more hit points unless you bake in some house rules to, to ensure that happens. And you're also correct, the fighter does have a much better um, array of weapons to do more damage, to deal more damage. To get that D10, though, they do have to sacrifice the shield. But especially like in missile weapons, a bow or a crossbow is, does a, a higher hit die than the sling. And a sword 
is better than a a mace or a warhammer. And of course, for magic items, you're probably more likely to find bladed weapons than blunt weapons. So a lot of times the the fighters will have the first choice when it comes to getting magical weapons and things like that too. So they do have that edge. And as far as like, <laughs> yeah, variable weapon damage, look through my back catalog. You'll see what I think of variable or D6 is a, is a standard damage for any, regardless of weapon. I think that completely nerfs the fighter and makes them, yeah, pretty, pretty bad. Backstab. You're right. I didn't bring it up. I'm, I'm trying not to just like, even though I'm doing this deep dive and touching on a lot of subjects, um, yeah, I'm not going to hit everything. And backstab is definitely one of the better abilities that a thief has. As you point out, it's predicated on attacking unnoticed, and they they uh, italicize that, so they're they're emphasizing unnoticed in the rules. And I know a lot of DMs really seem to be reluctant to try and <laughs> give the thief that <clears throat> that edge. And it really, I mean, if you're going by the rules, moving silently, a first-level thief only has a 20% chance to move silently. So there's no guarantee that they're going to, they are going to be unnoticed. You, you requires a setup. They're great for an ambush. And I think that's, you know, in the if you just happen upon a melee, a, a combat, it's really hard to maneuver and get a backstab. But if you lure a monster or a group of monsters out or into your area and have the thief hidden away in some alcove or something where they can, in the riot of combat, emerge and backstab that ogre or something, yeah, it's great. So you have to think tactically in order to, to get that edge. And then hope that you hit, because even though you get plus four to hit, it's no guarantee that you're going to hit. And then you're exposed, and potentially on the opposite side from your comrades in the melee, you find yourself potentially isolated. Uh, so it, it can be kind of a dangerous maneuver for the thief, too. And just a note, there. In the rules, I couldn't find anything about dexterity not applying to rear attacks. I know it, it does in AD&D. It does say that shields don't uh, count for a rear attack, and everyone gets plus two to attack from behind. A thief gets plus four, so they're only getting an additional plus two from a different character. But yeah, the double damage can be awesome if you roll high, can be a real letdown if you roll low. Let's go to your next comments. Oh, one more thing regarding hit points. Because thieves and clerics advance more quickly than fighters, and it becomes even more pronounced when you get to, like, third, fourth level and stuff, the, the, for multiple sessions, a lot of times the cleric and the thief has an extra hit die than the fighter. So you occasionally, and it's not that rare, especially when the, the cleric goes to second level and the, the fighter's still first level, you occasionally will have a session where the cleric has more hit points than the fighter. And sometimes even when the the thief has more hit points, uh, 
than anyone, especially if they have a constitution bonus and rolled well. So you sometimes get that anomaly. I'm going to throw a flag on the demi-human spot there. Uh, differentiation that should be noted for demi-humans and BX is that they're the only ones that there are minimums for their stats. You did say no maximums, but you also put minimums in there. With demi-humans, there are minimums there. Humans can be as weak as possible, uh, as dumb as anything. But when it comes to our dwarves, elves, and halflings, they do have stat minimums. Um, both dwarf and halfling, you have to have that constitution of nine, minimum of nine, to be one of those. Elf, you have to have a minimum of a nine intelligence. And halfling is the other, is the kind of the weird outlier there, because dex and con have to be nine. So two minimums. So, if you're rolling 3d6 straight, there's quite a possibility that you may never, you might not become a dwarf or a halfling. And somebody else can pull out the bell curve there, but if you don't reach a 9, and constitution is not allowed to be adjusted, you know, you're out of luck there. You know, halfling sent... Well, wait a minute, is Halfling, is that a prime requisite? No. Um, yeah, yeah, Halflings have to have a strength and dexterity are both prime requisites there, so Halfling can, potential Halfling character can raise his dex, but without that nine constitution, you're just out of luck there. Honestly, I, I feel that the Dwarf is a better class to play than a human fighter. They don't advance as fast, as you said, um, but they do it at a cost, you know, don't advance as fast and they also don't do as much damage because they can't use large weapons and the larger weapons do allow us to do more damage. If we're using variable, if we're all just using the standard 1d6, no matter what weapon we're using, why would you ever choose a fighter? You would only want to choose a dwarf because now I've got, you know, infravision and I can find, you know, new construction and the slanting passages and traps and all this stuff. I mean, you got so much more advantages than that. But with the variable weapon damage, now the human fighter is much more uh, likable. <laughs> you know, I can do more damage within the long run there. I do have a problem with the elf. In a way, you read off the flavor text. You know, elves are slender, graceful, demi-humans, right? So if they're so graceful, then why don't they have a dex minimum? Why do they have an intelligence minimum, but not a dex minimum? You know, you're implying that without a dex minimum, that elves could be, you know, could roll a three. They could be the clumsiest thing. It kind of goes against the flavor text, doesn't it? That's, I think that's one of those times that something wasn't thought of as well. All right, that's pretty much everything out of number two there. Let's get on to your part three of your deep dive. Yep, blow the whistle. Five-yard penalty on down in a heap. Replay the down. You're right. 
I, I did overlook or misspoke when I said that there were no minimums for the demi-humans. They do have the nines. And, uh, and I was, I was thinking wrong too about the human classes. And here I'm talking about, don't bring your preconceptions about other additions into BX. Here I was thinking that you needed a nine wisdom to be a cleric, a nine strength to be a fighter, a nine intelligence for a magic user, blah, blah, blah. That's all, that's an ad and Oops. And yeah, dwarves, I, I think they're clearly superior to fighters, and it's mainly based around the saving throws. The Like I pointed out, dwarves and halflings start out with the saving throw equivalent of a 7th level fighter. I think the only place where a 7th level fighter has a better saving throw is uh, in Dragon Breath. And fighters, yeah, they've... They're kind of worse than clerics, too, for for saving throws. Hmm. Um, and as far as dwarves using uh, or getting a, a penalty with uh, the damage output, they can use any normal or small size weapons. So they can use long swords and battle axes and stuff like that. They just can't use, like, two-handed swords and stuff. So, yeah, slightly less, uh, fewer options... And one thing I do to try and level the playing field a little bit is I, th- I make things like dwarf size, elf size, and especially halfling size magical armor pretty rare. Most of the magical armor you find is human size, so the demi-humans uh, usually are SOL. And even when you they're trying to find, like, off-the-rack chain mail or plate mail or something like that it's usually not available unless it's you know a a dwarven community that they're in or they maybe a a dwarven smith might make some of that and have it ready and available but usually they have to commission those things and the probability of rolling at least a 9 on 3d6 is 74%, so not unlikely, but not a given. All right, on the third one, you started off in alignments. Actually, you started off with that little picture with the classes and everything. Yeah, I can't tell if that's an L for a, a human magic user. I'm going to go with human since it's not, you know, it's just as tall as the cleric and the fighter uh, should be a little bit shorter. So we'll go with magic user, but almost looks like pointy ears. Yeah. Uh, alignments, alignment language is stupid. Why would anybody use it? Um, that whole, that whole part of, you know, if somebody changes alignment, they forget their old stuff and, you know, can pick, can learn the new language. They don't know it automatically. They can learn it. Where you know because I changed alignments, I forget what I used to do, how I used to speak, all the little hand signs and everything. It's like hypnotism or something. I don't know. I just never liked it there. Uh, that picture in there is one of my favorites. Of the that picture evokes so much. It really helps show law, chaos, and neutrality. You know, let somebody read that. Let them look at the picture, and. I think they get a good idea of how they should act. Um, 
but also good to note that lawful is not stupid. You know, as you said, lawful character, you know, in the what the situation where they're attacked by a large number of monsters and they have to slow down the monsters to escape, lawful character will fight to protect the group, whatever danger, and will not run away unless the whole group does. Right? You know, lawful is not stupid. They're just going to put themselves out there to protect everybody. That's cool. You went in on equipment and everything, and you threw me off there by jumping over and grabbing grappling hook there, and, and I didn't catch it, as you said, over in the advanced section in the expert, excuse me, not advanced, expert section with uh, equipment there. Honestly, you know, I never paid attention to disparity of the prices. I never questioned it. I just played. So maybe shame on me. But I never had a problem with it. You know, just like, okay, this is what it costs. Whatever. Though I will say for grappling hook, uh, a possibility. The fact that a grappling hook more likely is going to be used for less than honorable purposes, maybe that's the reason why it costs more because somebody's going to have to pay a little bit more money for something like that. Uh, who knows? Also, the fact that the amount of stress and torque that you would put that grappling hook under uh, when you're trying to scale something, I mean, that metal would be underneath a lot more stress than, I, than say, a sword being swung. Yeah. Being bent, hopefully not being bent back out of shape. Yeah, it's not a huge chunk of metal. It's not like you're throwing an anchor. And the massive amount of metal can stop it. So, I don't know. Maybe there is a reason for it. You know, I can try to justify it. But, yeah, I never really stopped and thought about why things cost different amounts. You know, for the price of two canoes, I can buy a light catapult. So, you know, if I steal two canoes, then maybe I can sell them to somebody and then go buy my siege equipment to go take over a town or a small castle. Who knows? All right, cool. Well, that got through everything that you said. That's all my comments. Uh, play them if you want. Don't play them. Appreciate you let me uh, say my piece there. And uh, look forward to your next set of deep dives. Yep, alignment languages. <laughs> Don't get it. I've honestly never heard anyone that actually likes alignment languages. I wonder if, if anyone does... Call and let me know. Let me know what I'm missing. What, why, why should we be using alignment languages? Grappling hooks, you make a good point. It might be a black market kind of thing, and therefore a higher cost or more unavailable or something. I have no idea about the construction of, you know, what, what would go into making a grappling hook versus a sword. I suspect a sword would require a higher level of craftsmanship than a grappling hook, but... I don't know. I I think in AD and D a grappling hook was quite a bit cheaper than twenty five gold pieces, and the armor that's that's the thing that really throws me off because I think an AD and D a suit of plate mail is like four hundred gold pieces, and a suit of chain is seventy five, rather than the forty and sixty that you see in BX. And honestly, I just like to see some of the mundane equipment 
out of the reach of beginning characters so that they have something to aspire to beyond magic items so that they're spending their gold and, you know, they've finally gotten the 400 gold pieces for a suit of plate mail and can, you know, increase their armor class from uh, their old suit of chain mail and maybe they give their chain mail to their henchmen or something. But thanks for the calls, Jeff. I appreciate it. It's uh, been a, a fun discussion. Hope everyone's enjoyed that. And now let's move on to a couple music calls from Joe. Hey, Rob, it's Joe, and sorry for blowing you up all the time, man, but I'm just chilling out on a Thursday night, uh, digging through podcasts while thinking about what the hell I'm going to do in my upcoming game, and I just listened to an episode of yours where you played Running Free, man, Uh, and dude, I love Iron Maiden. (laughs) I've seen them hell, three, maybe four times now in concert, and every time was amazing. The last time, they opened the show by showing a film of them landing their own jumbo jet plane at the airport, and their lead singer, Bruce, is a pilot, and they they just kick ass, dude, so thanks for that. Also, Thundar is the best. It's one of my earliest memories watching that cartoon, so thank you for just everything, man. Peace out. Here's another one. It just dawned on me that that song that you played off of their off of Maiden's first album was on your episode about new editions of games. So what about new albums from bands? Does that stay the same? How does that work? Like, do you prefer the, a band's earlier stuff to their later stuff? I don't know. That just dawned on me. So anyway, dude, think about that one for a little bit. <laughs> Have a good night, man. Peace out. Hey, thanks for the calls, Joe. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a big uh, Iron Maiden fan, too, and I like both uh, the early stuff from with Paul Diano singing and the later stuff with Dickinson singing. And Dickinson, yeah, what a renaissance, man. Pilot, singer, uh, fencer. I don't know. What, <laughs> what can he do? I know he has... Uh, like an autobiography that he wrote, too. Uh, I should check that out. Um, and sadly, I've never seen them in concert. Would love to, but eh, I'm getting to that age now where I, I don't know, it's just hard dragging my ass out of the house. I used to go to shows all the time, but mainly just local shows around here in the Twin Cities, uh, local acts and stuff. Not, I didn't really get into the big arena shows as much. Um, and that's a great question as far as do you like early stuff or 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 newer stuff or from bands and i hate to be to be a waffler but it really depends on the band some of them are shooting stars and the the first album or two is the pinnacle and then they kind of go downhill to me the ramones are a bit a little bit like that where their first couple albums are just stellar. And while their their later albums might have some really cool songs, like Bonzo Goes to Bitburg or something, um, they're, they're not as good. And there are some bands that start out hot and just phone it in and ride it <laughs> and never really produce anything good after that. And some that just evolve, too, and get better with age or, or their 
the style changes and stuff too. You listen to like Rush's first album and it almost sounds a little bit, it's really just more straightforward rock and roll and they don't really find to me their real sound until their second album, Fly By Night. And then, but then they changed too and they got more synth and stuff. So it's, or you look at Neil Young, hell, he changes genres from album to album. And changing the lineup in a band can also have a big impact on whether, you know, what, how you enjoy it and stuff, and yeah, maybe even the quality. Changing a guitar player, drummer, uh, the songwriters, and the vocalist especially is really noticeable. You look at a band like Sabbath, and their first few albums are great. Uh, they maybe went down a little bit, downhill, in the last few albums with Ozzy. Then they bring in Dio and the whole sound changes. But, uh, yeah, thanks for going through my back catalog, too. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, there's one episode where I go through my top seven gaming songs. Be sure to listen to that using the Anchor app. I know people hate using the Anchor app, but in that one... The only way you hear the music uh, sound bites is by playing it through Anchor. So if you play it in Apple or whatever, it <laughs> you don't hear the actual music and it kind of loses something. But uh, sneak preview, there's a Maiden song in that. Thanks for calling in. And thanks to everyone that called in to make this another bonanza. Um, one thing that the deep dive's kind of doing for me is making me kind of want to go back and revamp my Fantasy Heartbreaker, Halberds, and Henchmen um, using all the things I've learned playing uh, in the Whispered Tales of Gore. Adding some elements from that. Removing some of the elements I don't like so much. So, I don't know. I thought about making a companion piece where I went through the process of revamping BX morphing it into my own fantasy heartbreaker, Halberds and Henchmen. Uh, maybe that will come later. Or maybe I'll just drop a PDF and you guys can look at it and see what you think. But uh, until I talk to you again, coming up next on the BX Deep Dive will be a look at spells. Not sure when that will drop. Next few days, maybe. And my anniversary, it's going to be a year of podcasting coming up on the 10th of December. So not sure what I'll do. If anything, maybe I'll make a special episode. If you have any ideas, drop me a line, drop me a line with any feedback you have. It's always good to have these discussions. Don't go down any heap. P.S. If you're going through the back catalog of Gothridge Manor, which I highly recommend you doing because it's probably the best anchor cast out there. You just might hear me croaking out running free on one of those episodes.